0: Heads up, scammers are now taking advantage of the baby formula shortage. The lead starts right now. Fake websites for formula as the head of the FDA is pressed on Capitol Hill today if the Biden administration could have taken emergency measures sooner to help these frustrated families. And hand counts and remarks. The tedious process to read misprinted mail-in ballots that's keeping a key U.S. Senate race in limbo, plus monkeypox mystery. 17 suspected cases of the rare disease in Canada, and one confirmed case now in the United States. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with a health lead today in the Biden administration today warning parents, desperate to get their hands on baby formula, to beware of online scammers charging exorbitant prices for formula, formula that does not actually exist. Meantime, outrage on Capitol Hill over who is to blame for the crisis. House lawmakers grilled the FDA commissioner at a hearing today demanding answers and action to alleviate the shortage. This after the House passed a pair of bills to try to address the crisis. The first would provide $28 million to the FDA to help fix the shortfall and prevent it from happening again. The second bill aimed at ensuring low-income families can still find and buy formula. Last night, President Biden invoked the Defense Production Act to direct suppliers of formula ingredients to prioritize delivery to formula manufacturers. But the slew of actions is not stopping even Biden allies from criticizing the overall administration response.
1: Nobody did their job here. No one did well. Uh, Senator Casey and I wrote to the FDA and to Abbott back in February and said, what are you doing? We need to get this produced. We're going to be having a problem. And nobody responded with adequate urgency.
0: CNN's Lauren Fox joins us now live from Capitol Hill. And Lauren, nobody went easy on FDA Commissioner Dr. Robert Califf today.
2: That's right. It wasn't just Republicans who were grilling him, but Democrats and allies of the president who were going after the FDA commissioner, arguing that they should have had answers so- sooner as to what went wrong with this formula shortage. Why weren't they told sooner that this was coming? And over and over again, Calif made it clear that this investigation at the FDA is ongoing, and he did not provide them the kinds of detailed answers that they wanted and that they were looking for. You had at one point Rosa DeLauro, who is a Democrat on the committee, saying, which side are you on? Are you on the side of corporations or are you on the side of consumers and babies that need this formula. You also had this exchange from Representative Mark Pocan, a progressive from Wisconsin.
3: There was frustration when you were asked um, what happened and the answer you gave back as we're investigating, I can't talk about it. You can talk about it, honestly, you should talk about it. One problem that I've seen over and over with the FDA in my 10 years here is uh, you guys aren't good at communicating.
2: And Caleb made it clear that when he comes before Congress again for an oversight committee hearing, he is going to have more detailed answers. Of course, the question remains, will they satisfy Democrats and Republicans who want those answers now, Jake?
0: So 192 Republicans voted against a bill last night in the House to give the FDA $28 million to work on the shortage. Why did they vote against it?
2: Well, there's a lot of concerns from Republicans that money is not the answer to solve this problem. Now, what Democrats and the FDA would argue is they need more inspectors to make sure that not only the formula shortage is handled now, but that they can prevent it in the future. You also have the fact that Senate Republicans may not agree to bring this bill up. They may not provide the 10 votes that Democrats would need to actually pass that funding. So it may have passed the House, but it faces a very uncertain future in the Senate, Jake.
0: All right, Lauren Fox reporting live on Capitol Hill. Thank you. We'll have more on the baby formula crisis coming up later in the show. But let's right now turn to our world lead, President Biden, temporarily leaving behind the baby formula and economic crises at home to face critical foreign policy challenges. The president is on his way right now to Asia to attempt to reassure U.S. allies that he is still focused on high stakes issues in that region. President Biden's first stop will be South Korea, which is currently on edge as North Korea appears to be preparing for yet another missile test, perhaps even while Biden is in the region. CNN's MJ Lee joins us now live from Seoul, South Korea, where President Biden is due to arrive early Friday morning. MJ, how has the White House been preparing for this first stop on his trip?
4: Yeah, Jake, President Biden is set to land here in Seoul later today, marking his first trip to Asia as president. And it comes at a real uh, moment of volatility and turmoil around the world. There is no question that North Korea is going to loom large as a big issue during this visit. This is a country that has launched a number of missile tests already uh, so far this year. And the U.S. is now warning that we could see a long-range missile test or even a nuclear test during President Biden's visit uh, to Seoul. Now, the White House has been very clear that it is ready for all kinds of contingencies, that even those kinds of provocations. So uh, just reassuring people that even those kinds of scenarios, the White House is fully prepared for. Uh, Of course, a number of themes that the president is going to be discussing with world leaders is going to include the U.S.'s alliance with Korea and Japan. Japan is going to be President Biden's second uh, stop during this trip to Asia. And then, of course, the war in Ukraine. The president has said over and over again that he He actually believes that the war in Ukraine has brought the U.S. and some of its allies in the Indo-Pacific region closer together, Jake.
0: And just before President Biden left Washington, he hosted the leaders of Finland and Sweden. He could not have been more clear about his support for their bids to join the NATO alliance.
4: That's right. You know, uh, this is one more remarkable uh, development in the context of the war in Ukraine. These two countries submitting their applications to join NATO and the president hosting the leaders of both countries at the White House before he left for this trip. And what he said is that the U.S. has strong support uh, for their pending applications and that he believes the admission of both of those countries would actually make NATO stronger. Now, another key part of President Biden's statement today was when he said that while those applications are pending, uh, he wants the world to know that the U.S. is going to have their backs, essentially. He said uh, the U.S. will work to deter and confront aggression or the threat of aggression. So clearly a warning message of sorts, perhaps, to Vladimir Putin. Uh, Now, there is the question of the opposition that we have seen uh, from a country like Turkey. The White House uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said before reporters left for this trip that they are very convinced that all of the concerns that Turkey has Voice, that they can be addressed. Jake.
0: All right, MJ Lee reporting live from Seoul, South Korea. Thank you so much. Today, the U.S. Senate overwhelmingly approved an additional $40 billion aid package for Ukraine. This after Republican minority leader Mitch McConnell scolded some members of his own party for questioning the price tag. Still, 11 Republicans voted against the package. Meanwhile, on the ground in Ukraine, the 21-year-old Russian soldier accused of killing an unarmed Ukrainian man in the early days of the war is currently pleading for forgiveness, telling the man's widow today in court that he was, quote, sorry for killing her husband. The trial will resume tomorrow morning. In Mariupol, a dispute today over any suggestion, the port city had fallen to the Russians. While Russia says since Monday, more than 1,700 Ukrainian soldiers surrendered at the Azov Stahl steel plant, today a Ukrainian commander insisted that several hundred more fighters remain inside. And he vowed, quote, the fight continues. And Russia is ramping up its attacks in eastern Ukraine. As CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports for us now, many Ukrainians in Kharkiv are still sheltering underground after first taking refuge there more than two months ago.
5: The noises may be further away from Kharkiv, in its distant fields or villages. But part of the city still stays hidden underground, in the subways near apocalyptic dark warrens. (coughs) They came down to shelter just for the night, but that was two months ago. Homes now destroyed, but the fear of the bombs remaining, most have nowhere to go. (coughs) Officials have asked people to leave soon and stopped people sleeping, at least in the trains, which they have to get moving again. Ludmila keeps her place tidy and welcoming, but is alone here. Her flat bombed twice. I love it. It's nice. Okay, I
6: understand. Well, we're
5: here. they against
6: us. Against us? Yes, the war has not they're asking
5: us, how do you
6: How do я your здесь Well, i под
3: бомбежкой идти. нас room here, but
5: in the damp, cold coffin, with food in one bucket, urine in another. This is the desperation Russia's war on Ukraine wanted to inflict. Luba is sat between her family and people whose name she doesn't even know. Even if Ukraine wins, this is still where it hurts, in the loss of presumptions about the most ordinary parts of life. Viktor shy, his mother says, sheltering in a game of two pirate ships attacking each other. We see some deciding to leave already, Yet still the framework of permanence sets in and the outside's sunnier days turn noisy at night. Now, Ukrainian officials, while they do seem to want people out of the metro, are suggesting there's a plan to house them in dormitories. But Kharkiv, while it's significantly less under pressure than it was a matter of weeks ago, still at 4 a.m. yesterday, a rocket hit close to centre where I'm standing still tonight. We hear what sounds like outgoing uh, shelling and, of course, the fighting still relatively close to the city centre. Intensification, though, in the more central part of eastern Ukraine, as Russia appears to be making minimal gains there. And you mentioned extra U.S. aid. Well, another 100 million announced that's going to be rushed into here. And that, some say, may tip the balance in the longer term in Ukraine's favor. Their morale high. They keep getting more assistance from outside. Russia increasingly straining uh, to get more out of its overstretched forces here. Jake.
0: All right. Nick Payton Walsh in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much, as always. Coming up next, the accused Buffalo gunman in court The chances of this becoming a death penalty case, even though that's not currently on the table. And new warnings of a global food crisis largely brought on by Russia's war and invasion of Ukraine. Stay with us. We're back with our National lead Now, today, a grand jury indicted the accused Buffalo massacre murderer, the 18-year-old accused domestic terrorist, Briefly appearing in court this morning, the grand jury is expected to bring more charges against him after he pleaded not guilty to a first-degree murder charge. CNN's Brian Todd dives into the police investigation, into the accused killer, and looks at where he got one of the guns.
7: The accused Buffalo gunman appearing in court today under heavy security, handcuffed in an orange jumpsuit. He has now been indicted by a grand jury for Saturday's grocery store shooting that left 10 victims dead he was already charged Saturday with first degree murder to which he has pleaded not guilty other charges are expected to be filed including potential hate crime charges which would allege the killings were racially motivated as he is taken out of the courtroom an onlooker calls him a coward
8: hey you're a coward
7: he is being held without bail and faces up to life in prison if convicted security at the court was tight with police dogs and heavily armed officers and the suspect was brought in by tunnel The suspect claimed in a diatribe posted online that he got one of the guns, a savage rifle, from his father for Christmas in 2020. A savage box can be seen in this family photo posted on Facebook. A savage rifle was not used in the top shooting, but one was found in the suspect's car. The hateful rant said the gunman planned to use the savage rifle, along with a shotgun, to kill more black people in the neighborhood as he drove away from the top supermarket. The investigation at the crime scene is finished, but the FBI says the probe continues.
9: There are interviews to be done. There are, there are information and data to be gathered from from social media and other internet companies. Uh, there are analyses that need to be done on, on the evidence that was collected.
10: Taking them home.
7: Jeffrey Peace is an administrator at the State and, you know, Tabernacle Church. Seniors, you know, he was a fellow deacon there with deceased shooting victim Hayward Patterson for several years. I asked Peace about how the man who was so loved and trusted in the church community would have responded to his killer. The gunman was clearly full of hatred. Um, Do you think that Deacon Patterson might forgive this man if he were able to?
10: The Bible tells us to forgive. You know, it tells us to forgive. I can't speak. He's gone. He's gone. But if surviving, yes. I would say yes. I would have to say yes, and we're going to have to forgive the the gunman because we're here. The son of another victim, grocery store security guard
7: Aaron Salter Jr., saying he surely saved the lives of others.
10: He
11: went out because
10: he was trying to protect everyone. He made T.O.P.S. his priority. Even though he was retired, he cared about T.O.P.S. He cared about the people who came in there every day. He cared about the employees,
12: and it was his duty to keep everyone safe, and he went out doing that.
7: John Persons, the president and COO of Topps Markets, uh, told us they do plan to reopen the store, but he could not offer a timeline on exactly when. Jake.
0: Brian Todd in Buffalo, New York for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Carrie Cordero. She's the former counsel to the assistant attorney general. Carrie, thanks so much for being here. So New York has a red flag law, which bars individuals who are believed to be a risk to society and adjudicated as such by a judge or at least assessed as such by a judge from owning a gun. Now, the accused wrote an essay in high school about staging a murder-suicide. He was uh, asked about it by police who had been alerted to it, yet neither the police, nor the teachers, nor the faculty, nor his parents let a judge know using the red flag law. It seems obvious in retrospect that they should have, but these laws are, are underutilized.
13: So they're underutilized, and they're also, some of them, relatively new, Jake. So in New York, This law has existed for a few years in other states. It's been just a couple years. And so on one hand, when we look back at it, one of the, there's so many tragic aspects of this particular event. One of them is that there were so many warning signs that this individual exhibited and he came to the attention of all the authorities that you would want someone like this to come to the attention to. So it may be that there is just a much greater need Uh, for more training and awareness, whether that's for police, whether that's for school officials, whether that's for people in the community, parents, family members, to understand how to use these laws if they need to.
0: Now, the Buffalo suspect has been charged in New York with first-degree murder, uh, one count that covers two or more murders. The grand jury is expected, of course, I'm guessing, to bring more charges. What, What might those be?
13: So at first, right, so they're gonna bring charges just to be able to make sure that this individual um, stays in custody. So they could bring additional charges at the state level um, for the additional murders that this individual uh, has committed. There also could be at the state level an additional look at hate crime charges at the state level. And then the whole next layer that I expect we will will see, Jake, is charges at the federal level, which I would imagine the Justice Department is currently looking at as it relates specifically to federal hate crimes.
0: So last night, the House of Representatives passed a bill that is aimed at combating domestic terrorism. Uh, The bill would set up offices in the Department of Homeland Security to focus on domestic terror. It would call for the assessment of the threat posed by white supremacists. Now, just to be clear, what happened in Buffalo, it's horrific, but it doesn't appear to have been the act of a group. It appears to have been the act of one deranged racist. Would this law have had any impact? Would it have prevented this tragedy?
13: I think it's hard to say, Jake, that this particular law Um, if it were enacted, would actually prevent this act. It'll increase, if the law ends up becoming a law, if the Senate passes it, it'll end up uh, increasing information sharing. It'll fund and, and make sure that there is better resourcing and attention and congressional oversight of all these different components of government, DHS, FBI, Justice Department, who already have people in offices that are dedicated to these issues anyway. I think the law will help Congress do better oversight over this issue. But look, the key point that I think the country is still digesting and that the government organizations and agencies that are in charge of this need to do a better job digesting is at this point, these types of acts, although they are conducted by an individual who is inspired by this radical extremist ideology, This is part of a bigger pattern. And so if we look at the mass shootings, the mass murders that have occurred across the country, whether it was Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, whether it was the El Paso shooting, whether it was the Charleston um, church shooting, or whether now it is this one in Buffalo, they are all ethnically, religiously, or racially motivated. And this is because this is an extremist ideology that is pervading the country and also in other parts of the world. So what Congress is doing is trying to bring greater attention to that bigger
4: issue.
0: All right, Kerry Cordero, thanks so much, appreciate it. Pennsylvania election officials say they're now finished hand fixing thousands of misprinted ballots. So when will we find out how those votes impacted the key Senate race? That's next. In our politics lead, we're closely watching the vote tallies in Pennsylvania, where Lancaster County officials say they just finished counting the nearly 22,000 mail-in ballots that were misprinted. Those results are crucial in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's Republican Senate primary, where Trump-backed Dr. Mehmet Oz and former hedge fund executive David McCormick are currently neck and neck. CNN's Athena Jones is live for us in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Athena, do we know when we're going to get the results here?
14: Well, we expect to get results from the mail-in votes and the the election day votes and the mail-in votes later on tonight. I just spoke with the chief clerk and chief registrar here at the Board of Elections who says, I'm not leaving here tonight until I'm done. As you mentioned, they did through a monumental effort over the last several days, they were able to remark, sort of fix those misprinted ballots so that they could be scanned. I see the room behind me. It was filled uh, to the brim. You know, 50, 60 people working in groups of two over the last several days. They are now down to the last 660 ballots. These are mail-in votes that arrived on Election Day by the deadline. Unfortunately, some of those need to be remarked and scanned so so that they can be scanned. Uh, So they're doing that as I speak, uh, but they are determined to finish today. I should mention, though, that, of course, Lancaster County is not the only county that is still counting votes. And... Once all of this is counted, there are still going to be some 589 provisional ballots. Those can't begin to be counted until tomorrow at 9 a.m. And then later, military and overseas ballots. So, in a race that, that's that's very very tight, all of these votes count. This 589 provisional ballots could make a difference. And so. We're going to have some kind of tally today, but that tally is going to be uh, election day voting and mail-in voting up through election day, hopefully in the next few hours, Jake. That'll get us a little bit closer to knowing uh, who's going to be the winner uh, of the GOP Senate race, uh, primary race here in Pennsylvania. Jake?
0: Yep, and that's what we do in this country. We count all the votes, despite the misgivings of certain residents of Mar-a-Lago. Athena Jones in Pennsylvania for us. Thank you so much. Also. In our Politics Lead, the prosecution star witness testified today in the first trial sparked by special counsel John Durham's investigation. As you might recall, Durham was appointed during the Trump administration to look for any possible wrongdoing in the origins of the Trump-Russia probe. Uh, Durham has charged Michael Sussman, who is the tall man with dark hair, who was an attorney for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, charged him with lying to the FBI, alleging that Sussman tried to conceal his ulterior political political motives for passing along a a tip about the Trump organization's dealings with a Russian bank. Sussman is pleading not guilty. CNN's Evan Perez is covering the trial for us. Evan, who is the prosecution's star witness and what did he have to say?
3: Well, Jake, uh, the star witness is James Baker. He is uh, the former FBI general counsel uh, and a former contributor here at CNN. He met in uh, September 2016 with Michael Sussman uh, to discuss this tip about uh, purported... uh, Suspicious tip, uh, suspicious connections, rather, between the Trump organization and a Russian bank called Alpha Bank, uh, a Kremlin-connected bank. Uh, Today, in testimony, he provided key key uh, answers uh, for Durham's prosecutors. He said uh, that he was 100% confident that in his meeting, Sussman never said that he was there representing a client, not representing Clinton or any other client. And he also said uh, that if he had known, he would not have taken the meeting. Now, the issue. Uh, for uh, the prosecution is that Baker has given uh, various differing answers uh, in recent years uh, in various interviews uh, on this very question. And, uh, you know, the prosecution has been struggling over the last couple of days, Jake, to to try to show that this lie, it mattered at all. There was an FBI witness who testified uh, yesterday who said essentially it made no difference. He would have investigated uh, this tip the same way, no matter who had made this, uh, this allegation. And so Baker now is being uh, questioned by the defense. They're trying to undercut his credibility. They're saying essentially... Uh, Baker has given various answers, and it didn't matter in the end. Evan, this is a
0: case, this case, specifically about one alleged lie, but looming over all of it is the 2016 campaign, the bruising political fight between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, uh, the Steele dossier, uh, the FBI prosecution, Comey, Mueller, How is all this manifesting itself?
3: All of that is coming up in this trial. The judge has warned everybody, saying, look, Hillary Clinton is not on trial here. Donald Trump is not on trial here. This is about Michael Sussman. But obviously, these things keep coming up. Witnesses for the government have brought up uh, things, for instance, that Trump called out uh, to Russia to find more of Hillary Clinton's emails in 2016 at the height of the campaign. Uh, Jake, uh, Trump, a Trump tweet, for instance, was shown to the jury today. So uh, the theme of 2016 and some of the fights that, that loomed over uh, all of that in 2016 keeps coming up. And so uh, one of the things that I think you will see the defense try to do is try to put the context of all of this, saying, look. Uh, Trump was under investigation by the FBI. And this tip in the end uh, didn't really make a difference in all of that because the FBI was investigating essentially both candidates uh, before Election Day in 2016.
0: All right, Evan Perez, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, new rare cases of monkeypox appearing around the world. And what do we know about the non-confirmed, the now confirmed case here in the U.S.? Stay with us. In our health lead, cases of monkeypox are popping up around the world. Spain, Portugal, Italy, and the U.K. all confirming cases of monkeypox today. Canada announcing that they have identified 17 more possible cases after a case was reported earlier this week. And here in the U.S., one man in Massachusetts is recovering in the hospital from a confirmed case of monkeypox. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, For many, this might be the first time they've ever heard of the monkeypox virus. What are the symptoms of this virus? How does it spread?
6: All right, so let's go over what the symptoms are. Initially, the symptoms look like a whole bunch of other things. It's swollen lymph nodes, fever, but then after those, shortly after those, you get that telltale rash with lesions all over the body. This is why the contacts of the person in Massachusetts are being told to watch out for lymph nodes and fever. Transmission is through prolonged, and I want to emphasize prolonged, prolonged face-to-face contact, and direct or indirect contact with bodily fluids or those skin lesions and just to give you an example this has happened before in 2003 there were 47 cases in the u.s jake
0: are we hearing anything more about those possible other cases abroad
6: We are. Let's take a look look at places that have had confirmed or suspected cases of monkeypox. So we've heard of confirmed cases in the U.S., U.K., Portugal, Spain and Italy, and Canada has suspected cases. I want to be clear here. This is an interesting thing that a CDC doctor said earlier today, that many of these global reports are occurring within sexual networks. When people have very close contact with each other, especially if those lesions have started to form, that can be a way that monkeypox spreads.
0: After the coronavirus pandemic, I I think there are probably a lot of Americans who would get nervous when hearing about a new virus outbreak. Could this spread on an international level the way that COVID did?
6: Uh, The experts we're talking to say that that is quite unlikely. This is much, much harder to spread. It just doesn't spread in the same way. And I think the UK National Health Service, they summed it up quite nicely. They say on their website, it's very uncommon to get monkeypox from a person with the infection because it does not spread easily between people. As the CDC says, you need prolonged contact or contact with bodily fluids. This is not a COVID situation. I I know you might think, wait a minute, didn't we hear that at the beginning of COVID that this was containable? This is different. We do know something about monkeypox. It has happened before. For example, in 2003, when we saw those 47 cases, it ended at 47 cases. Obviously, COVID did not end at 47 cases. Jake?
0: All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Other health concerns. Uh, Bring us back to our world lead and dire warnings that even if Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine ended tomorrow, the entire world still would face a rampant hunger crisis. As CNN's Kylie Atwood reports, the U.S. and others are sounding urgent alarms about how Russian forces are interfering with food shipments that keep hundreds of millions of people across the globe from starving.
15: Ukraine held hostage because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is deepening the global food crisis.
0: When a nation that is the breadbasket of the world becomes a nation with the longest bread lines of the world, we know we have a problem.
15: Before the Ukraine war began, the country was the world's fourth largest exporter of corn and the fifth largest exporter of wheat. Now, those agricultural products cannot get out of Ukraine's ports because of Russia's blockade leaving dozens of countries desperate. David Beasley, the executive director of the World Food Program, said there are currently at least 323 million people around the world heading towards starvation.
0: Truly, failure to open those ports in Odessa region will be a declaration of war on global food security. And it will result in famine and destabilization and mass migration around the world. (laughs)
15: The Biden administration is ramping up its focus on this deadly crisis as global food prices are spiking. Secretary of State Tony Blinken convened a United Nations Security Council meeting on the topic today, calling for a coordinated international response.
16: There are an estimated 22 million tons of grain sitting in silos in Ukraine right now.
15: And demanding that Russia open the ports and allow trucks with food to leave the country.
16: The
10: Russian Federation claims falsely that The international community's sanctions are to blame for worsening the global food crisis. Sanctions aren't blocking Black Sea ports, trapping ships filled with food, and destroying Ukrainian roads and railways. Uh, Russia
15: is. Footage obtained by CNN from Melitopol Zaporizhia allows us to see what President Zelensky's administration is calling food terrorism. Trucks bearing the white Z symbol of the Russian military, stealing Ukrainian grain bringing it to Russian-held Crimea.
1: This is not just a strike at Ukraine.
0: Without our agrarian exports, dozens of countries in various regions of the world have found themselves on the brink of food deficit.
15: Russia is also carrying out strikes, specifically targeting
13: agricultural warehouses in the country. We're seeing attacks on everything from fields with craters in them. Uh, there are reports of Russian soldiers putting landmines in fields, destroying farm equipment.
15: As the world presses for an end to Russia's invasion, experts warn that even if the conflict did end soon, it would take years for Ukraine's agricultural industry to recover. The world is on the brink of mass hunger. Now, Jake, the Biden administration is working closely with European allies to develop alternate routes to get this grain out of Ukraine if those ports are not open, which, of course, Russia has given no indication that they will allow them to open. And one of the leading options here is putting this grain onto trains and transferring the grain from Ukraine to the neighboring European countries. But, of course, there are a lot of logistical and technological challenges that have come along with that. Jake? Jake?
0: Kylie Atwood, thank you so much for that report. Coming up next, CNN goes to Rio Grande, Texas and speaks to some of the Biden administration's most adamant critics of a plan that he has for the border. And they're trying to sound the alarm. Stay with us. In our politics lead, any day now, a federal judge is expected to announce whether or not the Biden administration must keep Title 42 in place. Title 42 is a Trump-era border rule that is set to expire Monday. It allows border agents to send migrants at the border back to their home countries using the pandemic as justification for preventing them from claiming asylum. CNN's Ed Lavandera went to the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, where some people say they are bracing for chaos if this rule ends.
10: So where where are we headed? We're headed towards the river. Uh, the river. For seven generations, Roberto Escobar's family has farmed the land near Roma, Texas. 75 acres that sit on the edge of the Rio Grande. It's a short little ride. It's a short little ride. You're right, you're right on the river. Oftentimes I walk this way. My ancestors came and settled right here. Migrants have crossed the river and through this property for decades. That's not new. But Escobar says what is new is the staggering number of migrants crossing the river
3: now. That's a Mexican site.
10: Escobar represents the vocal opposition to the Biden administration's efforts to lift the COVID-19 pandemic era policy known as Title 42, which allows immigration officials to block many migrants from staying in the United States for public health reasons. It's going to get wild here. We don't stop immigration right now. And then by lifting that, it'll get worse. U.S. Customs and Border Protection says in April, there were 234,000 apprehensions of migrants along the U.S. southern border. The Department of Homeland Security says that accounts for about 7,000 migrants being caught every day, but DHS is also bracing for a worst case scenario if Title 42 is lifted of capturing 18,000 migrants per day. For more than 40 years, Jorge Salcines has run McAllen Sports, a custom apparel and trophy business. The shop is just blocks away from the most prominent shelter taking care of the migrants passing through this border town. Many people kind of feel like we're over the pandemic, um, but many people still want Title 42 kept in place. Does that seem kind of uh, hypocritical in any way? It actually helped.
0: If Title 42 is helping to slow slow that down and we take it off, What's going to replace it? Because I don't see anybody coming up with a plan to replace this.
10: salcines also owns sprawling ranch land in South Texas. He says right now, the hunting cameras on his property capture more pictures of migrants than deer. If Title 42 is lifted, what worries you most? It'll be chaos on the border. It, we have a huge influx now of immigrants, illegal immigrants. It'll be chaos on the
3: border. We're going to be swamped with people. McAllen's
10: mayor, Javier Villalobos, says the U.S. government has pumped more than $30 million in the last year to help the city handle immigration costs like transportation and housing. But the mayor says the Biden administration should keep Title 42 in place to slow the flow of migrants into South Texas. Do you worry, though, that Title 42 is going to be used as an immigration policy and not a public health policy, which is what it is?
3: We have been seeing lesser numbers and it's more beneficial to us. Do I know that it's not a policy, an immigration policy? The answer is yes, but it has been useful to us.
10: If we're a nation of laws and if you're using a law incorrectly, are we
11: are are, are we being hypocritical? Maybe. What else is being done? to hold immigration down or to stop it or to um,
12: at least control it to some degree. Nothing.
10: Ruperto Escobar will keep working his land and keep waiting for an immigration solution that seems lost in these fields. Ed Lavendera, CNN, in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas.
0: And our thanks to Ed Lavendera. A new abortion bill, now very close to becoming law, may go further than any other state and ban abortions at the moment of fertilization. The implications next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. this hour, two popular SUVs recalled because they could spontaneously catch on fire. And the automaker is telling drivers to park outside because they could even catch on fire when they're turned off. Plus... While parents scramble and turn to extraordinary measures to try to feed their babies who need formula, officials in Washington, D.C. are doing what they do best, playing the blame game. And we're leading this hour with some breaking news. Oklahoma state lawmakers have just passed legislation that goes further than any other law in the United States by banning abortions at the moment of fertilization, when the egg is fertilized by the sperm. That's essentially an all-out ban, with very few exceptions. It could even potentially outlaw some forms of birth control. It's expected that the state's Republican governor will sign the bill into law tomorrow. CNN's Camilla Bernal is following the breaking developments. Camilla, this bill comes even before the Supreme Court has ruled on Roe v. Wade. So walk us through the details of this ban.
8: Yeah, Jake, it does. And here's the thing. The key here is how a pregnancy is defined. And that's why I want to take you right to uh, the wording of the bill, because that is key in all of this. According to this bill, a pregnancy is defined by the female reproductive condition that a begins with the fertilization B occurs when the woman is carrying the developing human offspring and C is calculated from the first day of the woman's last menstrual period. And so the definition here is going to be key moving forward. And it's why uh, Planned Parenthood is already preparing for what happens next. They say that abortion scheduled for this week in Oklahoma will likely go on as planned, but they're already making plans to cancel next week. Now, as you you mentioned, the governor is expected to sign it. He has shown his support for these kinds of bans in the past. And so we anticipate that moving forward, that's what the state is going to focus on. The governor has said that his state will protect life. He says um, that churches and nonprofit organizations are going to have to focus on adoptions. Um, and he says they will focus on also protecting the mother. So of course, uh, this is one of those issues that you have all kinds of opinions on both sides of the aisle, uh, but that will have big implications for women in Oklahoma. Jake.
0: The legislation has measures in it that would punish doctors who provide any abortion. What does that entail?
8: Yeah. In addition to defining what a pregnancy is, it also states uh, that essentially a private citizen could sue an abortion provider when they knowingly um, provide an abortion or induce an abortion. And so what's going to happen here is that these abortion providers will be punished and could be held accountable legally. And that will have huge implications as well because they're now looking at what they can do in order other states. And that's why Planned Parenthood is now looking at the nearby states to see if that's what they're going to be able to do, move those abortions to other states because they will not be able to happen in Oklahoma once this is signed.
0: The bill does include something of an exception for rape and incest, but there's a little bit of a catch to it, right? Tell us about that.
8: Yeah, you have to report that rape to law enforcement before you can be or essentially be able to qualify for that exception. So they are making it extremely difficult. And, of course, uh, supporters say that this is what you need um, in order to move forward, while opponents, of course, say it's a dark day. And they say this is not just another ban, but this is a first and a reversal of history. Jake.
0: Camilla Bernal, thank you so much. Let's bring in uh, Kim Whaley. She's a former federal prosecutor and a law professor at the University of Baltimore. Uh, Kim, again, I I think people need to understand uh, even, you know, a banning of abortion uh, at the moment of of implantation is considered uh, extreme uh, in terms of uh, laws. But this is the moment of fertilization. The, The sperm fertilizes the egg before it's even implanted into the uterine wall from a legal standpoint, how could that be enforced? And, and wouldn't that ban some forms of birth control?
1: Well, Jake, this is what happens when the grown-up in the room leaves, and that is the grown-up is the United States Constitution, right? So we take that out of the picture as kind of the red line that uh, state legislatures can't cross. And this is what where we get to, right? Yeah. So the it, most women don't know they're they can't even know they're pregnant until about six weeks. And of course, this would potentially ban IUDs, intrauterine devices. That is the egg is fertilized. It cannot implant or it could it could be a problem with spontaneous miscarriages. Right. That you lose the the the. Uh, the pregnancy, not aware that you lose the pregnancy, and that your neighbor finds out and then files some kind of a civil action against you. Um, This could be a problem for ectopic pregnancies. The the, the fertilized egg uh, plants in the fallopian tube, your provider gives you a medication to end the pregnancy because it will kill you, but the provider doesn't want to do that because they don't want to be... Uh, prosecuted. And if, they're, if they don't do it, they could then be faced with some kind of civil action later for malpractice when mom dies. Um, this is not surprising. It, we shouldn't call it abortion. We should call it a ban on contraception. And I think where we're headed, Jake, is to uh, the, the abortion, anti-abortion activists moving towards a, a treating any fertilized egg as a full human life and we, we see, we'll see rip, uh, ripple effects across the country. This is when five unelected people tinker with the Constitution this way. This is what we see. It's a hot mess.
0: There's also IVF care. Couples that cannot, uh, that are having trouble conceiving, uh, get IVF treatment. How would this legislation impact that?
1: Well, uh, you know, what, what happens with IVF is that you, as a woman, you will have your eggs um, harvested, or you you know you take it drugs to produce a lot of eggs. Those uh, embryos are created by mixing them with sperm. They're frozen. So of course, destroying any of those or not implanting them into uh, a uterus that could carry to term, uh, um, that that would potentially be banned. And it's not even just a ban. We're talking about enforcement. And you mentioned, okay, the enforcement. Traditionally, that means prosecutors. So prosecutors make a decision. Do we have enough evidence here to show that this miscarriage was actually a decision, knowing decision to terminate a pregnancy when it is just Joe Schmendrick down the street? That's a different, they don't have the same metric to make that determination. So there isn't that stop gap. And think about a child. Um, you know, you, you, you talk about in calling and letting law enforcement know that you've been raped. What if you're 11 and it's, you know, your mom's boyfriend or something. I mean, the, that is that's the kind of cruelty that we are headed towards with this this potential uh, Dobbs decision that is based on uh 500 years of, of you know, uh, UK, uh, British history preceding the United States Constitution when it comes to women's rights. It's it's uh, it, it's triggering a culture of cruelty and it's going to have ripple effects that are not just for women and, and girls and for their families, for providers, for CVS, for pharmacies that can't now uh, write prescriptions for legitimate medical care for feel that, fear that they're going to be prosecuted. And it's also going to have effects on our economy. Are women going to want to work in states that have these kinds of draconian laws? Are they going to want to raise their daughters in these kinds of states? We're moving towards uh, divided states of America, not a United States of America. And again, it's being done by five unelected people who are not accountable at the ballot box. It's a disaster for the Constitution, and it's a disaster for our society, frankly.
0: Ken Whaley, thank you so much. I appreciate your thoughts. Uh, meet the Afghan women. Who must decide between covering their faces or losing their on-air jobs? That's next. Plus, a look at how seaweed and a fisherman in Maine may have a solution to global warming. Stay with us. In our world lead, one Russian soldier is asking for forgiveness in a Ukrainian courtroom after pleading guilty to killing an unarmed man. Now, as CNN's Melissa Bell reports, he's recounting in detail why he fired his weapon, and apologizing, or trying to at least, to the man's widow.
11: From the start, Russia's invasion of Ukraine stalled. Like here, on February 28th. These pictures, shared exclusively with CNN by Ukrainian armed forces, show a column of Russia's 4th Tank Division after it had hit a landmine and its soldiers had fled. One of those soldiers on Thursday facing both justice and grief.
17: Why did you come here? Did you come to defend us? From whom? Did you defend me from my husband you killed?
5: Our command gave us an order to move in as a column. I didn't know what would follow.
11: Vadim Shishimarin is accused of killing Katerina Shelipova's husband Olexander, an unarmed civilian, in the village of Chupakivka. CNN has geolocated this video, where Shishimarin's unit hit the mine, as being just two miles from Chupakivka. The Ukrainian armed forces say that the Russian soldiers then fled and killed local civilians. In court, the prosecutor said that Shishimarin and four other soldiers had fled the scene in a stolen car and that Shishimarin was given an order.
9: It was very stressful. I was under great stress. He shouted at me.
11: A version of events corroborated by another Russian soldier who was traveling in the car that day.
18: The warrant
10: officer ordered Vadim to shoot with the justification that the man could be reporting on us. Vadim refused to do it and the man ordered
11: him to do it. A glimpse into the chaos and fear of the early days of the war on the Russian side as well.
4: Can
17: you please tell me, what did you feel when you killed my husband?
4: Shame. Do you repent?
5: Yes, I acknowledge my fault. I understand that you will not be able to forgive me, but I am sorry.
11: Shalipova said she wanted Shishimarin imprisoned for life. The only alternative, she said, an exchange for the Azovstal prisoners of war now in Russian hands. A a reminder there, Jake, that even as this trial takes place here in Kyiv, there are 1,700 evacuated soldiers from the Azovstal steel plants in Mariupol now in Russian hands. Some of them expected to be interrogated with regard, we understand, from the Russian side to alleged crimes they've committed in the east of Ukraine. One piece of interesting news tonight from Azovstal, we knew that there could be still some fighters inside one Ukrainian fighter posting tonight a video saying that he is still inside the plant and intending to fight on Jake.
0: All right, Melissa Bell reporting live for us from Kiev. Thank you so much. Now to our other world lead. The Taliban are now asking Afghan women who appear on TV to cover their cover their faces or telling them to do so rather. This comes after a decree earlier this month where women were ordered to cover their faces while out in public. CNN's Christiane Amanpour is in Kabul and spoke with female TV anchors worried this could be the end of women on Afghan television.
19: For the past five months, Khatera Ahmadi has been anchoring the morning news on TOLO TV. But this might be the last time she can show her face on air. The morning editorial meeting starts with worried discussion about mandatory masking. Station director Kholwak Sapai says he'd even consider just shutting down and leaving. But then he thought female staff who want to carry on anchoring with a mask can, while those who don't will get other jobs behind the scenes.
7: We will leave the last decision up to them. They will make their own decision.
19: And it's a tough decision for these women who brave the new Taliban regime to stay on the air, who've already adjusted their headscarves to hide their hair, and who now fear a steep slide back to the Middle Ages. Khatera says she's so stressed she couldn't even present her program properly.
2: It's not clear. Even if we appear with the burqa, maybe they will say that women's voices are forbidden. They want women to be removed from the screen. They are afraid of an educated woman.
19: Across town, the Taliban government spokesman Zabiullah Mujahed was attending a meeting with local journalists to mark a slightly delayed World Press Freedom Day. We stopped him on the way in. You have said they have to wear a face mask if they're on television. Women. Why? It's advisory from the ministry, he says. But what does that mean? Is it compulsory? If it is said, they should wear it. It'll be implemented, as it is in our religion too, says Mujahid. It is good if it's implemented. Afghan women are afraid that this is the beginning of your efforts to erase them from the workspace. They're afraid that if they wear the mask, the next thing you will say is their voice cannot be heard publicly. What is your response to that? Like during COVID, he says, masks were mandatory. Women would only be wearing hijab or masks and they will continue their work. He seems to say that if women wear this, they can go to work. But the dress code edicts, like saying female university students must now wear black, not colored headscarves, is an escalating war of nerves and everyone fears where this will lead. Back at Tolo News, these female anchors are distraught.
18: <laughs>
19: what should we do, cries Tamina. we don't know. We were ready to fight to the last to perform our work, but they don't allow us. <laughs> we women have been taken hostage, says Hila. Women can't get themselves educated or work. Like me, who's worked on screen for years and couldn't leave Afghanistan, Due to the fear of the Taliban, I can't go on screen again. Since the Taliban take over, the stations employed even more women than before because they need a safe space. And as for the actual journalism, Tolo News is Afghanistan's leading independent news channel. But director Sapai says they'll all quit the day the Taliban pressures them to tailor their coverage or lie to a public that's come to trust the truth they've been delivering over 20 years. He saved the station so far, recruiting a whole new staff after most employees fled the Taliban's arrival.
7: And from management level, I've stood alone. And I, I was uh, considered, I was only thinking that how to keep the screen alive, not to go
19: dark. The challenge now is keeping it from going dark. Christiana Manpur, CNN, Kabul, Afghanistan.
0: And our thanks to Christiana Manpour reporting for us from Kabul, Afghanistan. While parents are searching everywhere for formula to try to feed their hungry babies. The FDA chief is focusing on another aspect of the recall. Stay with us. In our health lead the Biden administration invoking the Defense Production Act in hopes of alleviating the dire shortage of infant formula across the country. A senior administration official telling CNN that there are active and ongoing conversations with companies About how the emergency measure will be deployed, officials have cautioned this is not a magic wand. As CNN's Manu Raji reports, this all comes as lawmakers share new outrage over the handling of the crisis.
12: Nearly everyone in Washington is angry about the nationwide shortage of baby formula.
1: No one did well. Nobody responded with adequate urgency.
12: And lawmakers are getting an
1: earful back home.
16: I'm hearing concerns that it's hard to find formula, and anybody who's been a parent knows what a, you know, what a panic that puts parents in.
12: The shortage stemming from a shutdown at an Abbott plant in Michigan, severely disrupting the supply chain, given that Abbott is one of just four companies controlling most of the U.S. market.
18: What we should be doing is blaming
0: the system while we allow the monopoly to occur why this has happening.
12: As the crisis has compounded, President Biden invoked the Defense Production Act, ordering suppliers to provide resources to manufacturers and allowing the use of Defense Department aircraft to pick up formula produced overseas, since 98 percent of baby food consumed by Americans is made in the U.S. It's a move that even some Democrats wished had been employed sooner. Should Biden have invoked the Defense Production Act sooner?
1: Well, they did now. Uh, I will tell you. Um, I sent a letter prior saying they, they should act
12: mm-hmm.
1: uh, because uh, we needed immediate action.
12: But that wasn't immediate enough? Or...
1: Well, I can tell you I sent a letter for a reason. Mm-hmm. Even
12: loyal allies frustrated. I urged repeatedly use of the Defense Production Act. I... Regret that it took a few days and maybe
16: longer to do it.
12: Senator Mark Kelly, battling to hang on to a seat in Arizona, did not mince words.
16: We've got a major issue here. Uh, you know, we've got
10: families across the country that are really struggling. I mean, there is not an alternative uh, to this. So this is a, a critical, um, I mean, it's, it, it's a crisis right now.
12: FDA Commissioner change, Robert Califf grilled earlier, by both parties today. It all begs the question. Why did the FDA not spring into action? Caleb predicted the problem would soon be fixed.
3: So I can tell my constituents that
15: within a matter of days, they'll be able to find formula on the shelves?
3: Within days, it will get better. But it will be a few weeks before we're back to normal.
12: For Democrats struggling to keep control of Congress in this fall's midterms, the issue only adding to their problems. Do you worry politically that all these issues could
11: hurt your ability to keep the House? Sure. I'm not an idiot. So, yeah, I mean, you know, people have challenges. We got to get a stronger, better message out there. There's no question about it. If you're a Democrat and you're not worried about that, you're, you're not paying attention.
12: Now, the Senate just passed a bill that would allow low-income individuals to use federal benefits to purchase baby formula, but a separate bill that passed the House that would provide $28 million to FDA to help deal with this crisis, that faces an uncertain future in the Senate as Republicans are skeptical of this measure. And Jake, this all comes as Democratic senators are calling on the White House to name one point person to oversee this crisis, but it's uncertain if the White House will go that route. Jake.
0: Manu Raji reporting live for us on Capitol Hill about this crisis. Thanks so much. Joining us live to discuss Democratic Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut. She serves as chairwoman of the House Appropriations Committee, and she held today's hearing on Capitol Hill. Madam Chairwoman, thanks for joining us. So in testimony today, one of your colleagues told the FDA commissioner, Dr. Robert Califf, quote, you guys aren't good at communicating in terms of the ability to explain what went wrong. Do you agree.
18: Well, I think we have to ask that question. I asked that question as well. Uh, And the directors talked about there's an investigation that's ongoing, but you can't hide behind an investigation. The fact of the matter is you had in Abbott Nutrition a bad actor, uh, in fact, who put a product on the market knowing it was contaminated. They violated all kinds of rules of the road with regard to to safety. They falsified documents, falsified testing results, The, the audits uh, with the, um, uh, the, the FDA, they lied to the FDA, uh, and keeping in mind, and your report demonstrated this, that there are only four major producers of, of uh, infant formula in the, in the United States. One of the underlying facts here is that why in fact uh, do we have sole source uh, you know, uh, contracting and the consolidation of the industry. It should be competitive. To answer your question, the FDA dragged its feet. They knew in September. They knew in October through a whistleblower's Uh, report that there were serious infractions. They didn't interview the whistleblower until December. They went back in in January, and they found contamination, and the recall only occurred uh, in February, uh, and that was four months. Why four months? There's got to be answers to that question from the FDA. There's got to be accountability. Uh, with, with Abbott. That is happening. That will happen. Uh, and I am investigating that. But right now we have to deal with the shortage. Let's get supply uh, of product onto the shelves because it's heartbreaking. Jake, at least two infants died. Two infants. Yeah. And four hospitalized so, or more.
0: So I, I hear everything you're saying. And just to reiterate for our, for our viewers, the, the whistleblower, and the American people first heard about the whistleblower because of you, whistleblower first alerted the FDA of safety lapses, as you noted, at Abbott in October. They didn't interview right. the whistleblower until December, as you just noted. Yes. They didn't visit the facility Again, until January. January right? That is slow. Yes. That, that is some slow action. Yes. So, yeah, I hear you about Abbott, but the FDA is oh. there to protect us, That's to, right. to prevent this from
18: happening. Right. No, I, I listen, I, I, and I said it today's hearing— uh, and we did uh, provide $28 million last night and I'm happy to explain that. But there needs to be not one person in the White House overseeing this. What there needs to be is the structuring at the agency. The FDA is a regulatory agency. They ought to be held to that. We don't produce infant formula at the federal level. But there are manufacturers who do. We have to hold them accountable. My question to them is, why did it take you so long to move? And We didn't get real answers uh, to that today, which is why we've asked for an Inspector General's report. That's why what I wanted to do, because in the short term, we have to bring product in, and I uh, uh, applaud the Defense Production Act, I applaud an airlift, but I also want to make sure that we have a safe product on our shelves, and that what we ought to be doing is importing from just uh, FDA-approved facilities. There is a standard and the FDA didn't use that standard with regard to Abbott, but there is a standard. Let's make sure we are importing a product that parents who are frantic at the moment can believe that they can feed their baby and at the same time know that the product is safe. That is what's have to happen in the short term. Right now, the agency needs to be restructured and. Actually, food safety at the FDA is a second-class citizen. I said that in the hearing today. Yeah. Uh, and we need a separate agency that deals with food safety, at the very least a person in the agency, in the agency, a deputy commissioner who has absolute authority over food safety and someone who is schooled and has the relevant credentials for that effort. That does not exist at the moment at the FDA.
0: The chairwoman of the House Appropriations Committee, Rosa DeLauro, thank you so much for your time today, Madam Chairwoman. We appreciate it. Coming up, why the January 6th committee now wants to talk to one Republican congressman about what he did on the eve of the January 6th insurrection. That's next. In our politics lead, we learned this afternoon, former Attorney General Bill Barr has tentatively agreed to give sworn testimony to the January 6th Select Committee. That's according to sources You say the testimony will be behind closed doors. Barr has informally met with the committee in the past, including a sit-down at his home last fall. CNN has also learned that the January 6th Committee is now investigating a tour of the Capitol that had been given by Georgia Republican Congressman Barry Loudermilk on the evening of January 5th. Committee members say they want more details about the tour because evidence shows some groups were trying to gather information about the layout of the Capitol before the insurrection the next day. Congressman Laudermilk just responded to the committee in a statement saying, in part, quote, a constituent family with young children meeting with their member of Congress in the House office buildings is not a suspicious group or reconnaissance tour, unquote. Also today, the FBI announced more than 800 people have been charged for their involvement in the Capitol riot. To date, 290 of them have pleaded guilty. 175 have been sentenced for their crimes. Also in our politics lead today, we are just five days away from yet another round of crucial primaries. And one of the most watched races will be the Republican gubernatorial contest in Georgia. Despite an enthusiastic endorsement from President Trump, there are serious warning signs for former Senator David Perdue, who's trying to unseat incumbent Governor Brian Kemp on a platform entirely made of lies about the 2020 election. A new Fox poll finds 60% of Republican primary voters supporting incumbent Governor Kemp compared to 28% who prefer Senator Purdue. Compare that to March when the race was closer, 50 for Kemp, 39% for Purdue. Let's discuss. Eva McCann, let me start with you. So one former Trump campaign official told CNN, quote, Georgia will be an absolute bloodbath. So what's going on? <laughs>
17: Well, I don't know if it will be quite that bad, but listen, we are seeing the power of incumbency on full display. There is nothing like running for the job that you already have. I thought former Senator David Perdue would have been doing a little bit better in the polls. I am, frankly, a little surprised. Um, but also, Governor Kemp has the benefit of having a Republican-controlled legislature in Georgia that helps him deliver on conservative policy priorities, many This isn't like here in Washington, where it's a bit of a mess, where you have some agenda-crushing Democrats and President Biden. The Republican-controlled state legislature with Governor Kemp is able to get stuff done for the base.
0: Jackie, this is one of the races Trump has been most vocal about. He's even gone to Georgia to hold a rally for Purdue. He wants revenge against Kemp for upholding the rule of law. What would it say about Trump's influence if Purdue badly loses in this largely conservative state?
20: I mean, right, and it it it, it, it says it says a lot it, it, as much about Donald Trump as it does about David Perdue because we've kind of seen this movie before when it comes to David Perdue. He started to pull back on campaign events. The money is starting to dry up. He's not running any TV ads, and you saw some of that same behavior in the run up to his loss to uh, Sen- now Senator Ossoff. Uh, He just is, he has not been um, that viable of a candidate in this race. But it's not just the gubernatorial race, it's the Secretary of State's race where the incumbent. Um, Brad Rapsberger is running against uh, current Congressman Jody Heiss, who is who is a a big MAGA guy. And right now that race is a little bit closer. Um, We'll have to see on Election Day how that shakes out because there hasn't been as much recent polling on that particular race. But Trump certainly has put uh, because of his vendetta against Kemp, against the Secretary of State, he really has put a lot of his um, anger and vengeance into this race. And it, it actually seems to be backfiring at this point because even voters who like Trump have told um, our reporters who've been on the ground, like Sam Brody, that, you know, yeah, sure, they like Trump, but they're going to vote for Brian Camp at the end of the day.
0: So let's go uh, north a little bit to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Eva, Trump has been calling for his pick, his endorseee for Pennsylvania senate dr oz to just declare victory now oz is right now slightly ahead but of course thousands of ballots in pennsylvania have yet to be counted now when i signed off the air tuesday night primary night just before midnight dave mccormick was ahead in the primary it's sure interesting that trump waited until after oz took the lead before he called for the counting to stop
17: Right. This is going to be, uh, continue to be a nail biter. I, I don't know if Dr. Oz uh, will do that. I think there, that there is a risk involved. It will be embarrassing if he comes out and declares a victory when, if he ends up not, in fact, being a winner. But I think that this is a wake up call for Trump endorsed candidates across the country. That endorsement is, is, it, it's helpful certainly in a Republican primary, but you can't rely on it alone. Uh, I was out with Congressman Ted Budd in North Carolina this week. He was the uh, victor in the Senate Republican primary there. And yes, uh, Trump absolutely helped, but also uh, he spent his time visiting all 100 counties in that state. So you have to put in the, the, the groundwork as well. Uh, that uh, old school shoe leather politics, that's also a calculation in all of this.
0: Jackie, let's uh, shift to the Democrats, the infighting, the brouhaha over the New York congressional map, the most public dispute <laughs> right now. The the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, says he's going to leave his seat and run instead in a newly drawn district because it's where he lives. But this would likely pit him against incumbent Congressman Mondaire Jones, a progressive freshman who already represents that area. Jones told Politico, quote, Sean Patrick Maloney did not even give me a heads up before he went on Twitter to make that announcement. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about Sean Patrick Maloney, unquote. Is this a, a big problem?
20: It's a huge problem. You had Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez call, call uh, Congress Maloney's behavior shameful today. Uh, progressives are angry about this because it also could potentially uh, pit Congressman Jones um, against fellow black progressive uh, Jamal Bowman, who's right next door. Uh, and and uh, Bowman Said today that Maloney's one job is to get Democrats reelected, and he's not doing his job right now. So I think there, this is not a problem that has been solved. We'll find tomorrow is the deadline for this. this map to be um, verified. So this is not going away, but certainly the the job of the DCCC chairman, one of the many jobs is to reelect Democratic incumbents. So when we have one that's potentially challenging another incumbent in a safer district, redrawn district next door, well, that is unprecedented and certainly something, grab your popcorn, this is gonna get interesting.
0: Eva and Jackie, thanks to both of you. It could be a $100 million idea how one fisherman in Maine is using seaweed to fight global warming. Stay with us. A question worth $100 million in our Earth Matters series today. How do you get carbon dioxide, the gas responsible for global warming and all of its associated problems, out of the air? As CNN's Bill Weir shows us, one answer, believe it or not, is is seaweed. And it could net a fisherman from Maine, among others, quite a catch.
16: To avoid cascading disaster, science agrees that it won't be enough just to stop using fossil fuels. Humanity must remove trillions of tons of planet cooking pollution already in our seas and sky. And whoever figures out how to do that might just get $100 million from Elon Musk.
0: You know, sometimes people say, well, just plant a bunch of trees. I'm like, that's not so easy. You need to get fertilizer, you're going to water them. Where's the water going to come from? Uh, What habitat are you potentially destroying where the trees used to be?
16: With his year-old carbon X Prize, the controversial billionaire says he wants to lure out the geniuses who will figure out how to capture and store carbon dioxide on massive scales. It's a Godzilla. Yeah. It's burning forests
9: down, it's stealing our fish. And among the finalists is a humble fisherman from Maine. There's this thing out there and it's like ruining everything that we love, right? All the good stuff is getting ruined.
16: Your dream was to have a boat?
9: Yeah, I just wanted a boat. I really just wanted a boat. There just aren't any mackerel. Like, they're all, they're all, they swam north, they
16: swam east, and they're now probably up in Iceland. With his beloved Gulf of Maine getting warmer and more acidic by the day, Marty Odlin quit chasing mackerel, built a team of geniuses, and went fishing for carbon dioxide with seaweed. Because kelp grows and gobbles CO2 much faster than trees, needs no land or fertilizer, and when it sinks to the deep ocean, the carbon can be locked away for a thousand years. But kelp needs sunlight and something to hold on to. So Marty, who is also an engineer, went to the drawing board and he settled on floating thousands of high tech buoys in the North Atlantic, each holding a little kelp forest while a ring of limestone serves as the antacid for the ocean. Solar power runs a camera and instruments connected to the cloud, and when a crop is cut and falls into the deep, Marty gets a carbon credit from a billion dollar fund set up by Canadian e-commerce giant, Shopify. You have a couple high-profile investors behind you. Mm Do you think that'll be enough if government can't get its act together?
9: No. This has to be No, it's just the math. (laughs) People spend billions of dollars to see if there's an oil field, right? And what we're trying to do is build the oil industry in reverse.
16: He imagines the Portland docks coming back to life to capture carbon the way they once built ships to beat Hitler. It's a race that no one loses as long as someone wins.
9: Like, I don't care, like, you know, like as long as somebody wins this race, like cool,
16: right? Right, right? I don't care who moves the most of it. So he's thrilled to see competition like Beth Zoller among the Silicon Valley startups betting on big kelp. So if you end up being the Henry Ford of carbon through seaweed, <laughs> this is your model A, Exactly. I guess. <laughs> yes, this is,
8: uh, this is Gen 1.
16: She envisions massive seaweed farms anchored closer to shore. But since rope can tangle sea mammals, her team invented a whale-safe scaffolding screwed in place by underwater drones and fed by upwellers that use wave energy to spin up nutrients and cold water from the deep. Amanda and Beth have two offers on the table for their seaweed-based bacon company. And before her crops are hauled and dumped, another one of her companies will extract the plant protein and turn it into meat alternatives. I'll do that deal. What are we waiting for? Are we
9: waiting for all the fish to go away? Mm-hmm. I've seen enough go away. Do I have to wait for, uh, do, does the ocean have to be completely dead before mm-hmm. we get our right. act together? And so I, but you see, I think all this anxiety, all this frustration that people have, it's just because we haven't been unleashed. Hmm.
16: So inspiring uh, talking to him. Just imagining his ideas, and of course, it's not just the private sector. Just today, the Department of Energy, Jake, announced they'll be releasing $3.5 billion to develop direct air capture machines. These would be like giant, uh, massive machines on land that would filter the air, capture that carbon, and then they'd have to store it somehow. Uh, guys like Marty think we should work with nature, supercharge the natural uh, carbon capture of plants like giant kelp there as well. But... If you look at the rate of emissions, it's still going up into the sky and into the sea. We need all of the above ASAP.
0: Bill Weir, thanks so much, as always. The SUV recall leading Ford to tell drivers to park their vehicles outside. Stick around. In our money lead today, Ford is recalling 39,000 large SUVs and is advising owners to park their vehicles outside because they could catch on fire. The recall of some 2021 Ford Expedition and Lincoln Navigator SUVs comes after multiple incidents of engines catching fired while parked and off. Ford is still trying to figure out what's causing the fires. And he was held inside a Russian prison for 985 days. But now, American Marine Trevor Reed is back in the United States with his family and sharing his story exclusively with CNN. For the very first time, Reed is talking about his arrest, the trial, life inside a Russian prison, and being released after almost three years. Be sure to join me this Sunday, the CNN special report, Finally Home, The Trevor Reed Interview. It's this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever, whenever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow.